Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Get ready for some awesome. So loud. That's so loud. Man, that hurts my ears. Hello, Jonathan. It is time for the November wrap-up. Yes, it is again time for the November wrap-up. Okay, there might have been a little issue where we had to do a little bit of editing afterwards. Hold on. We're doing the whole thing again after talking about all this yesterday. (laughs) Well, let's, you know, it's really one of those tomato-tomato things at this point. It is a little bit of editing. We're changing that. uh, There's no editing. We're doing the whole thing over again. (laughs) <laughs> That's like You're saying welcome. the Shawshank Redemption is an edited version of of Titanic or something. It's a totally different thing that we're making now. Just for the record, though, am I Leonardo DiCaprio in the remake and you're Kate Winslow? Is that right? <laughs> Winslet? Is that where you're going with this? I, it, You know what? If you're going to be a Hollywood movie star, it's definitely going to be Leonardo DiCaprio. Why is that? I don't know. Just... It strikes me as I, super pretentious and <laughs> full of himself. I would see myself more as like Michael B. Jordan. Like, don't you see that? Um, no, not at all. No. I see myself as kind of Matt Damon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you see yourself in Matt Damon's like backyard because you're stalking him? Or is that what you mean? <laughs> or, or what? No, I mean, we just have a lot in common. Like what? No, it's just, I don't want to get into it. It's pretty calm, obvious for everybody who knows both of us. Like a, a taller, cooler friend? Uh, <laughs> We're short. I- We're both short. <laughs> that, that's, that's it. Oh, okay, we really do have to re-record the whole thing. But you should be happy about that because you said something on the podcast that you were keeping You're right. secret. Not, I did think that, of you that. Know what, which, which, honestly, that's a really good thing because... The basic idea that we're reflecting on is the idea that for people like you and me who talk about God for a living, there is a tendency for your spirituality to be just this professional uh, act that you do, and it yeah, it becomes a performance. Yeah. And so you talked about something. Uh, both of us have these things that that we have in our lives that we don't want to talk about because we like. I think I was convicted because Beck talked about this where. If you're always talking about it, then in some ways it devalues your connection to God. Yeah, that's yeah. So I'm glad. I'm glad that I I will not make that mistake again today. Like twelve hours after doing the first one with you. So in a lot of ways, I saved your faith. <laughs> yes, I will be the one person in the world in whom you <laughs> saved their faith. So uh, I I want to ask you a question, and yesterday when I asked you, you were surprised because I didn't run it by you. But this today, you you know it's coming, um, mm-hmm. and I actually know your answer. So this is gonna let's just go through the motions here. So mm-hmm. one of the things, I'll- okay, Jonathan, you do the same sermon multiple times every Sunday. <laughs> Sunday, let's not act like this is a new thing to you. You do the same thing every Sunday. Not okay. So I write a new sermon every Sunday that I do twice. But it's not the same thing every Sunday. <laughs> no, but you do the same thing of do one thing in the morning, do it again later that morning, and you act as though it's like brand new. And do you ever do Randy Harris's like trick about, hmm, how do I communicate this, even though you know 100% how you're going to communicate it? Uh, no, I haven't. 
Um, but I, mean, I, 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 have, I haven't either. Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> I have done little tricks like that, so I, I get it. It just feels different in having a conversation, like yeah. to ask a question that I already know the answer to. Um, yeah. So speaking we, of asking questions, I already know no, the answer. No, 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 no. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt. I had Beck out two weeks ago to preach with me. Yeah. A couple weeks ago. And I felt really weird because, you know, we had to do it multiple times on Sunday morning, or we got to. And what I often do with Beck is we can just kind of riff and kind of go wherever, which I'm sure we'll do the exact same thing in this conversation. We'll riff and go different places. But having to do it a second time at a different service made me feel very claustrophobic. Like I couldn't just follow where the conversation goes. Yeah. So I, in co-preaching, it is it does feel a little bit like that, especially if you have like jokes and stuff that, you know, you're picking on each other or it, it, the second service always feels a little less spontaneous. Yeah. Um, well, this one's still going to be fully spontaneous because you want to talk. Do you want to? What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the election or Thanksgiving? Because uh, you have to. Yeah. So it's right after Thanksgiving. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes, I did have a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> hey, go, I, go ahead and do the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I had a good Thanksgiving. Got to hang out with my family. Um, somebody, <laughs> somebody else preached for me. Um, yada yada yada. I really messed up on the, recording the wrap up podcast, so I'm sorry. Wait, are you acting as though you're me right now? Or yeah, yeah, of course, okay. of course. I didn't mess up the okay. wrap up podcast. Okay, and then then I'll do your answer. Okay, go uh, ahead. Thanksgiving was good. Uh, I went to the uh, civil rights museum with my mom, who my mom says the n word, even though she's not really racist, <laughs> but she said it, and she was oh trying gosh. to. <laughs> You can't. Okay, so here's the the story that I told yesterday. My mom was an advocate for black people in the fifties and sixties in Arkansas, and I went to the Civil Rights Museum with my parents and my two oldest kids. I cannot believe that's the worst way to frame this. So sorry, mom, if you're listening. And my mom does not get. My mom does not get that, um, like, social cues very well. And so last time I went to the Civil Rights Museum with her, she was telling my niece stories about, like, standing up to people who were being mean to black people in the 50s and 60s. And she was quoting them saying the N-word in the Martin Luther King Jr. Museum. That's the same thing I just no, said. No, it is totally different. It is t- okay, so let's go. Let's go. Uh, election. I'll be you. You be me. Um, <laughs> question hey. to Luke: How did you? How did did you preach differently on Sunday after the election? Here's Luke. Heck yeah, I did. My cause won. I'm a huge Trump supporter, <laughs> and I was really excited about. And then this is this is your response. You know what? We need to listen to uneducated people more because they have more to say than the educated elites. And you know what? Education is really dumb. And really what we need to listen to is hillbillies because hillbillies are the heartbeat of God. Thank you. Okay. I feel if, like, you, if you I, accept my interpretation, I accept yours. <laughs> let's, uh, let, let's seriously talk about that because okay. the election... It changed a lot of people's perception of the country we live in. That's because true. this this election went away that a lot of people, uh, a lot of media types, and a lot of other people did not foresee it going. Uh, yeah, and, and the people that we hang out with, right? Like I, I hang out in I'm in an academic city, um, and and a lot of people I spend my time with did not see this coming. I did not see this coming. We were on a text chain with other preachers the morning of. 
And, you know, I think all of us were like, think we were all pretty sure that the Hillary was going to win. And yeah, and, and that's not a statement of who we were personally going for, but we just thought, right. Uh, I mean, like if you had different candidates, if you had Rubio in there, the assumption was, oh yeah, yeah, Rubio would be able to beat sure. Hillary. And if you had Biden in there, Biden would have even a larger margin of expected victory over Trump than Hillary did. So that we're basically just assuming what the country would vote like. Yeah, because I mean, and we had plenty of reason to to think that all the polls, um, you know, the stuff that uh, Trump was saying just seemed to disqualify him at, at almost every other day. Yep. But um, yeah, so one of the questions I asked yesterday was, did you preach differently on uh, the Sunday after election than you had planned on? Yeah. And what I did, I did five five minutes or so at the beginning uh, because I feel like you have to address the issue. And I don't know about your perception on this, Stormont, but it seemed like in the Church of Christ, we have a tendency to kind of not deal with issues that are right in front of us. Oh, you yeah. Think that's a, a fair indictment of our tradition? Yeah, yeah and that's, there's, a, there's a strength to that, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Which is, how, how would you describe the strength? Well, I mean, like Anabaptist. Being Anabaptist at its best is is to say we think the church is going to be the answer to the problems of the world we're going to create a new kind of humanity and um you can't you know like for example my church paid for me to go to college they didn't wait for some kind of federal scholarship to yeah. program your church of, of 12 people in rural arkansas yeah, right right i mean it's, it's that's amazing yeah so, but I mean, and, there's there's also like the everybody's thinking about it, and you just pretend you're, you know, you have a lot of people yeah. pretending like that. But what your move was was you addressed it, and then you took the Anabaptist read on it, where you I, I saw the clip that uh, Matt Pinson, one of your coworkers, posted from your sermon about we're still going to work for uh, reconciliation, we're going to st- still work for the treatment of women uh, being equal to men, we're still going to love our Muslim neighbors, like. But we're not going to wait on the government to do it for us, regardless right. of who's who's in the White House. So Richard Beck right now is doing a series on a book called The Fractured Republic, where he's talking about how um, – and I, I think a lot of preachers that I heard – and this is a good thing that is going to come out of this election. Um, I think a lot of the people are starting to wake up to, okay, we've put a lot of hope in the state. And, you know, for the last eight years, we – we we um, had Barack Obama's pres- first black president, and it, 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 Richard said this yesterday in the post. We Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, all that happened with a black president. Um, so it didn't. The state couldn't fix that. It can't legislate um, those kind of things. And so the turn locally to working with the mediating institutions. Um, to to invest your energies and life into things like that um, is a better alternative. Not that not that policies don't matter; they do. But that uh, the we're putting. So Stephen yeah. Colbert on the night of the election said, "We drank too much of the poison this time. We drank mm-hmm. it because we liked it and it it tasted good, but it 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 was poison all the same." Yeah. So when you and I were growing up, the religious right was probably at its strongest. 
And yeah. there was the message from the right of, yeah, we've got all of our hope in in whatever Republican candidate is going to win and get in the White House. And it yeah. seems like for the last eight years, the you know progressive Christian left uh, has been able to follow into that same sort of pattern where you, you think the hope is in Barack Obama. And I, I think there has to be a way to, to differentiate between the significance and value of someone who can put in policies that lead to a more just and equitable and righteous future and say that like that does matter, but your ultimate hope as someone who follows Jesus is not in a political candidate. That's right. How you, and how do you balance that? Um, well, I mean, I think you ordered your loves correctly. I've, I've, t- I've said this on the podcast before, but when on, we did that um, bus ride with 10 black preachers and 10 white preachers, one of the things that one of the black preachers told me is that the black church has uh, a better ordering of their loves because the state has let them down. So, like, you, you hear right now, um, I've heard this story several different times. Um, a lot of younger black people were crushed when, you know, Donald Trump was elected, and they went to their mother or their father, and they weren't oh, surprised wow. at all. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas the people who are most likely to say, oh, it's no big deal, let's just move on, are people who look like me. People look like you and me, white, straight, Christian males, who for the most part, the state hasn't done a whole lot uh, to hurt us, and that we haven't been let down. And that's so... Yeah, but what my point was that the parents weren't surprised because they hadn't, you know, like they, they had, um, they had different orderings of loves. Like they, they, the state had let them down many times before. Hmm. And so they, you know what I mean? Like they weren't, um, crushed by, by it. And, you know, I I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I don't think anybody understands the, the Trump election. Just yet, I think it's going to take years because, like, fourteen Trump won more black voters than Romney or McCain before him. Um, the, do, you, do you have the percentages? Yeah, it's something like fourteen uh, percent. Um, and hmm. I'd love to talk to them. And then the I think twelve or thirteen percent of the people who voted for Trump voted for Obama both times before him. So. You know, the simplistic narratives are not working. Wait, are um, you saying it 14% more black voters than Romney got? Is that what you're saying? No, I think it's just 14%. The Republican of the Party black is not, vote. not a huge draw for um Yeah, I was kind of assuming it was... Yeah, I was assuming it was even smaller than a 14%. Because uh, 14% more than what a, um, Romney got would have been probably, I don't know. Uh, one, a minuscule of, number. Yeah. one of the ways I'm making sense of of uh, Trump's election is picture the office on, you know, yeah, the Michael office. Michael Scott, yeah, 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 yeah. TV show. Th- those are all the people who voted for him. Scranton, Pennsylvania literally went for Donald Trump. And the, you know, it's, it's a failing business yeah. model, largely white working class, but... You also got your Stanleys and your Daryls, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that's that's interesting. You saw the uh, the story that came out yesterday about uh, Trump stepping in and saving some AC company in right. Indiana. Yeah. Carrier's and, not going to Mexico now. Yeah, Carrier's not going there. Which, yeah, sounds like a 
that's the Scranton, like a Scranton. I don't really know a whole lot about that situation, but that's a Scranton that supposedly, you know, Trump steps in and, and helps. Now uh, the backside of that is the, the rest of the state of Indiana is having to subsidize and pay for what appears to be, uh, you know, a company that's not doing extremely well. Uh, so, which brings up bigger questions, but for that one group, yeah, like that's, that's their savior for it. Yeah. I get it. I get it. So there's the, your book, uh, Hillbilly, what is it? Elegy? Hill, Hillbilly Elegy, yeah, by J.D. Okay. Vance. J.D. Vance, which you love, you love that book, growing up in rural Arkansas. You know, I, born in Philadelphia myself, moved to Southeast Ohio, which is just like an hour away from where Vance grew up, and so it's right in the, the heartbeat of the Rust Belt and where the Hillbilly vote, the, what is it, the, the white working class? Is that mm-hmm. what the white group's called? White working class is... And so a lot of this this election was tied to that group of people. And so there's the the, yeah. the fraction the the fracture between that white working class America and I guess the rest of the country that had a different attitude about what was going to happen in the election. And a lot of people think that's what swung the election. Oh yeah. So JD Vance had an interview. I just finished writing a blog on this yesterday. Um, before we even talked, but he had a, a, a thing where he said, hillbillies are the last people that it's okay to look down on. Um, you don't have to be ashamed to look down on hillbillies. And okay. there's there's a condescension when politicians talk to or about them. And Trump declared a war on the condescenders. Um, that's why no none of the things he said, and, and this is important, I think, um, this is going to get understood more and more as we go on. And by the way, I care deeply about racial reconciliation. So this, this, the stuff that, um, has come out of, of this about people of color being, you know, harassed or, or yeah. all those things. This is, that is not okay. The church has got to step in and it's, and, it's sad that you have to qualify that, which you do. Um, because to say anything, uh, yeah, about this election, it, it yeah, it, yeah. There's just, no, there's no like, but the thing that the thing that um, resonated with him is that he talks the way. And again, I grew up in poverty, and I grew up around a lot of yelling and shouting and people being rude. He is not civilized, and he yeah. talks about politics the way that the white working class tend to talk about it. Um, so, like. J.D. Vance, this Yale Law School graduate, said um, it's not it's not about he, – he conducts himself in a relatable way. He shoots from the hip. He's not afraid about offending someone, which I, I wish he would be a little bit more aware about offending other people. But people don't want to think they have to speak like an Obama or a Clinton to participate meaningfully in conversations about things like politics. So Which, I think that was part of his appeal. Okay, so the underlying thing is that you've got this group of people that feel like they're losing what they had before. And what they're losing is the the privilege you have of being a white person who gets things better. And I think part of what the narrative is is that the white working class is now losing its grip on the privilege of being white, and all of a sudden they want to go back. And the only way... <laughs> For there to be more equality, that means they don't get to step up on people who now are having a voice. And that's that's the critique of what Vance is saying, is that, 
okay, you have these people who are losing their voice, but the reason they had a voice is not because they earned it, but because other people who have a voice that should be heard uh, are being muted. So Sean Palmer says that uh, equality feels like a loss to people who have privilege. Yes. And that's true. But I, I I would pump the brakes a little bit on what you just said in the sense of I've been away from Arkansas for 15 years, and... I, I've realized I've lost touch. This election made me realize I lost touch with my family and my friends because when I go home and talk to the people, and these are people, education is not the only thing. I have uh, someone who is in my family who has a master's degree, um, is pro-choice, uh, a feminist, voted for Trump. And it was largely uh, about reasons that are hard to describe. Um, but and it has nothing to do with not you know, it has nothing to do with the reasons that you just gave. Yeah. Um, And to say that there's just one universal blanket statement for everyone would be part of the problem that I think this election proved that you can't have a sweeping generalization of everyone. Um, I think, I think one of the great things that will happen out of this is that Trump just blow broke up the election block. So I don't think, uh, I, I don't think the democratic party or the Republican party, are going to look the same. And after these four years, I don't think, I think the religious right is dead. Yeah. I think they, they, they have sold their soul um, to get political power. And Rohr's line is, is the, the evangelical church. This will be one of the great sins of the evangelical church that we will regret a great deal. And I, I don't know. Um, Again, I'm not saying that if you voted for Trump, you've lost your soul, and I'm not saying that Hillary is the right candidate. I'm saying that that the ability for the church to, to sacrifice and to compromise, to step into the political arena, has hurt the church. Uh, and it's sure it's been great for Republican Party, but when the church is supporting that, whether it's the left or the right, it's fine for politics. It's terrible for church. And so, let, can we can we move into Stephen Backhouse? Sure. Yeah. Uh, podcast first, because I think it this actually fits really well. First off, I thought that that was one of the best podcasts you've done in a year or two. Um, oh, stop it. Thank you. That's so sweet of you. Well, it was because Richard Beck was asking the majority of the questions. I really thought if you could have him That's... come help some more. Move on. Carry on. Um, just rude. So one of the things that uh, Backhouse was talking yeah, one of the things he was talking about was that Christendom, which is what we're actually talking about right now, is that America is much more Christen, Christendom than Denmark, which, you know, it's about Soren Kierkegaard and his, that when, his thing on how how many of your liberal listeners, their heart went pitter-patter when Obama talked about being on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Um, that that is Christian, Christianized nationalism. Um, the liberal myth of progress is just as much Christianized nationalism as the conservative myth of a golden age. It's Christendom. And and the thing, and I think the black church can help us here, because it's what that black preacher told me on the bus ride, is that the call of Jesus is to not define yourself or get your identity from the groups that you participate in. Mm-hmm. Um his line, which I loved, I tweeted it yesterday, was, if you can describe your identity without constant reference to God, then you're doing it wrong. That's um, very compelling, yeah. 
It is, right? And so if you're if you're an American, a Democrat, um, whatever, whatever it is that you're labeling yourself as, um, the call is to turn out of that and come to Jesus. And then you can pick those things back up, mm-hmm. participate in communities, be a part of a church. But that and you can have Christendom, political convictions either side, right? Yeah. But you'll hold them lighter and looser, and and you'll be a, you know, you don't don't let even church do all the heavy lifting for you, so that you you're turned to Jesus, and then you're in a community of faith. Yeah, yeah. So most people can't differentiate between following Jesus and being part of a community of faith, and that's what like the prophetic voice of the Kierkegaards of the world have to do. And that's, I think that's the best of what Pete Rollins is doing is that like he's critiquing Christianity so people can, I think the type of person like a Kierkegaard and hopefully what a Pete Rollins can do is critique the religious system so that people within the religious system can encounter Jesus and not, not be lost. Yeah. I, you know, and, and to be fair, I think Soren Kierkegaard would be like, I, He's a he's a great thinker who's changed both of our lives in ways we don't even know. But he would be a horrible person to have in your church. <laughs> what would you know? Yeah, what would it be like to have Kierkegaard in your church? Ugh, I can't imagine the emails. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, can I tell you one of the the different things of being a church planner to being a part of a somewhat large established church that's been around for decades? is a sense that all of a sudden, you know, as a church planner, you're not part of the institution. And then when you go from being that to being the preacher at an established church, it's like, oh, not only are you part of the institution, like you are the voice of the institution. And it, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. So I, one of the things I would, I would like to ask Soren Kierkegaard in heaven, assuming that you get in, <laughs> who's got a better shot, you or him? I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like there was a riot at his funeral. Christians didn't want him buried in a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, by the way, one of the highlights of the month was when um, Stephen said, uh, "Can you imagine, Luke, if decades after your your death, people weren't born Luke because the name was associated with being an idiot and a fool?" I was like. I can imagine that. I can definitely imagine that. I think that's a very real possibility looking forward. Do you feel better now? It is cathartic. Yeah. You're right. You feel better? Good. I want you to feel better. You know, like we say in comedy, you always got to punch up, and you just punch away. (laughs) You just punch away. You know who also does that? This is a nice transition of mine. Graves. I found that whenever I make fun of Graves, he just kind of plays dead. Like, he doesn't interact as much anymore. You know, I think that's actually a good move with you to to do that with you. What? Because then it just leaves you looking like a tool. Hmm. You're like you're. Speaking of that, like it's not even worth. It's just rude on a podcast to do that. It's rude on a podcast because you're you're giving. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, you probably did. Was it difficult for you hearing? Uh, this is a transition to the one with Melissa Green and Josh Graves talking about preaching and the Enneagram. Was it difficult hearing Josh Grave? Graves talk about being the healthiest three preacher still because he, he goes to that pretty often. He, he yeah he does he's not the healthiest preacher uh, you know I am I'm, I'm a three as well and I'm probably the healthiest. Do you have a ranking? We're very competitive us threes. Like I do he, I do and he's like seven. Where's Wade so, on that? Because he's also a, an Enneagram three. Um, Palmer, man. 
Palmer's two. He's good, but Wade is probably toward the bottom. Above or below Gra- um, or Graves, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll go with above. That's good. Because I'm writing a sermon series with Wade right That's now. That's smart. That's smart. I don't want to tick him off too much. No, you shouldn't do that. When uh, So we're talking about Enneagram and preaching. How much do you find yourself being aware of your tendencies because of the Enneagram as it's presented and surfaced in your preaching? Um, yeah, so a lot. That actually has been really helpful, but more for spiritual direction. With preaching, it was, you know, I realized I, I had a, con- a tendency. To, so three sin is to deceive. To make you, you know, like us or think that we're successful or, or whatever, um, to uh, just image based. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, that was that was something that. So I, I would I've rewritten sentences many times since the enneagram, being like, that's, "Have you really? That's actually yeah. I mean, that's a little misleading. Um, telling that story makes it look like I know more about this than I do. But one of the great things about being at Highland is. I can't take a lot of shortcuts. I can't tell you how many times in between first and second service I've said something that a professor has been like, "Hey, don't don't say that in second." <laughs> how how frequently does that happen no. in the last three months? Uh, once. Oh, okay. So uh, twice <laughs> in the last three months. But I mean, and they're kind about it. And they're gracious, and they actually, you're right. Yeah. So you can, that that is a little bit helpful. No. But the thing that the Enneagram has done for me has been more for my soul because my base sin is lying. And that that's not just like lying like, you know, to get out of something. That's like not seeing the world truthfully or presenting myself truthfully in it. So uh, a few years ago, I was talking with Randy Harris, friend of the show, who's my spiritual director, and I was telling him that, you know, I think my problem is that I'm just too empathetic. <laughs> and and Randy goes, such a Randy thing. He goes, I, I don't, I don't think you can be too empathetic. And then he had me talk. And now looking now with the Enneagram, I realized that was just a lie I was telling myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what the problem wasn't that I was too empathetic. It was that I could read people and knew what I needed to be to get them to like me. Yeah. yeah. And um, so and so that's that's how it's presented. I was making it sound like I was super noble and stuff. That's impressive. In reality, it was just to, to spin it that well. That's 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 almost a gift that you have. But with the okay, so the enneagram helps you become aware of yourself. And there's certain things that, like all people do, that kind of are magnifying glasses into your soul. And I think preaching, like yeah. if you listen to someone talk for for hours on end, like multiple sermons together, you get to see into who they are. And I think preaching can function the same way like once you know yourself and you can look go back and see this is what i'm doing this is what i'm talking about this is what i'm always going to it it does the same thing like it shows you what you really care about by listening to what you talk about if you don't have disciplines to kind of um to force you into places you don't want to go right yeah and so so for me as a seven like my tendency is to not is to run away from pain. Like, so that's my sin is to, to avoid that and to mask that. And so I find myself having to tell myself, like when I'm preaching, Luke, you don't have to make a joke here. You don't have to make it funny. You can sit in this Uh moment and to not, not run away from it. And 
the Enneagram, I think when, when I'm preaching, I've never had to like rewrite, I guess this is rewriting sentences to go, no, don't, you don't have to add something light right there. That's, that's how I rewrite. Yeah, no, I get that. So your, your temptation would be to be all Easter all the time. Yeah. So for me, uh, I, and I actually have that, that tendency as well. I'm, I'm more hopeful and optimistic personality. And, but for me, the church calendar has helped with that. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go dark and Lent. I'm going to talk about, and that's not something I would like normally do. You, you know what's um, weird though? I'm a seven and I shouldn't, but I find myself typically going dark. Like I would prefer a lament service over like resurrection. Was that before grad school? No, before grad school I didn't have that, but it also hasn't been five to eight years probably. It's been that I've, I've kind of gone that direction. I think because of too much rah-rah stuff just seems uh, seems disingenuous to me. Like if I don't... It, if I don't feel pain in the artists, whatever kind of art they're doing, like I, I, yeah, I yeah. just I, I check out because I don't feel like they're being honest. Um, it, to a point, I get that, and I actually argued that for a long time, and and now I'm starting to think, okay, we're saturated in what we honesty. I did quotation marks there for the podcast listeners. What? Yeah. Um, so so much that we cannot describe we can, we have a, a hundred poets who are thousand poets who can describe misery and i bet we don't have five who could describe pure joy okay first of all is there Do is you know there what? ever such a thing as pure joy like isn't the human experience the mixture of joy and sadness altogether okay so great joy okay uh, but i feel like i feel I, like I mean, real do you see what yeah, i'm yeah, saying but, we've got kitschy joy and we've got misery, but ki- and we've got but like, like kitschy joy is like sh- like eating candy. Like it tastes really good for a second, and then you feel bad afterwards. Like the co- I mean, I'm not talking about kitschy joy. I'm talking about I know, but joy. let me finish. Like I think the great joy that you have is always found in the context of the normal human experience, which is Friday just as much as it is Resurrection Sunday. Like I think the real joy has to be placed in the normal human situation which involves sure you know your you know your loved one has cancer or obviously for me you know your mom has a chronic illness that never gets better and like it it always has to be in that for it to be real so uh, one of the things that i i realized and i this i was talking with richard beck about this lunch uh, like a month ago is when i grew up it was a lot of joy and or and resurrection stuff and it's it's primarily because what Richard talks about at the prison, because our lives were in working class poverty. Mm. Um, yeah. We did not have so yeah. we get we got lament. I mean, death was all around me. I, I went to a, I don't know fifty funerals before I was eighteen, and uh, some of them were my friends. The you know opiate addiction in the in the Bible Belt has. Unprecedented levels right now, but it was starting back then, and so we get despair. Um, I I do think middle class, upper class people, um, and particularly white people, particularly white males, probably need to be really cautious about writing off lament and and the suffering of the world. But um, yeah, there's there's the old line from the Goo Goo Dolls song where it says you bleed just to feel like you're alive. You know that song? Oh, do I know Goo Goo Dolls? Man, I love of the Goo Goo do. Dolls. You're, you're, you're a white 30-year-old. You have to like Goo Goo Dolls. 
And I don't want the world to see And I don't me. want them to hear you either. Um, <laughs> but, like, there's a sense that you, you don't feel anything because you're so, like, inundated with, uh, with pleasure of just constant sensation, of always being entertained, and that you start to forget, like, that you are actually a human being because you're just one sensation after the next. Like, you're always entertained. You always have something to prevent you from being bored. Yeah, so I guess that's the experience that probably needs lament more than, like, Richard's friends at the prison or, you know, growing up poor. Yeah. yeah I get that. Um, you got to bear in the suffering in the world and, and be honest yep, about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. We got to talk about N.T. Wright and Original Sin. So let's okay. do, let's do old Tom Wright first. Were you nervous? No, talking no, with him. We're just old friends now. Like he, for real? Okay, uh, just between me and okay. You. Were you no. nervous? No, me and Tom are just buds now. I would, because I think you could hear that in the conversation because you know he he likes my jokes. Obviously, that's part of the rapport that we have. Yeah. You could hear him laughing. Um, Pity laugh. No, I think it was genuine. You know, it's uh, yeah something you can connect with because me and. Me and old Tom have a different kind of relationship than you. But uh, seriously, like, it's easy to interview Tom Wright because um, he's going to just talk. He doesn't really need me to, like... No, no. Luke, he was preaching at you for, like... He would go on, like, 20-minute tears. I I mean, I I was like, he has found him a sinner. No, no. He is. He's like, hey, Luke, you're... We're on the same page here. You get what I'm putting down, so let's just kind of be old buds chit-chatting. I do think, I think you put your finger on, and I'm a huge N.T. Wright fan. I mean, like, I've read everything he's written, and that's significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't write a sermon that has, he hasn't influenced, and, and often I quote. I don't, I don't, um, I don't think he'd want to be claimed for that, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's probably one of his greatest achievements. <laughs> so, but I do think you put uh, your your finger on the pressure point of the problem that people like, us have with him which is what's the elevator pitch like how do you sum up let's say somebody's dying and they say to you luke what do i have to do to be ready to meet god what do you say because you you don't have the confess your sins confess that jesus is your savior and then the block between you and god is gone and so now you're good with god and you can meet God. Like that's a much easier sales pitch than the the entire story that's found in Scripture. Okay, so yeah, you can't. I mean, if you got if they've got a couple of days on hospice care, you can't be like, well, let's start in Genesis one. Yeah, okay, but I feel like that's an that that is the big flaw in the gospel that I think Tom Wright helps us experience, which I think is the more accurate and biblically faithful version of the gospel. One hundred percent agree it's a problem for people like you and me who do this for a living and the person who shows up one Sunday and we want to convince them this is what Jesus means to you. The problem is there are people who could go, I made a joke about UT quarterbacks, the University of Texas, their college football team's quarterbacks. And I made a joke and I intentionally messed up the order just to see how many people would, would notice that I was wrong. I got someone who wrote me, I think it's about a nine-page document that was printed off on my desk Monday with the entire list of every quarterback who's played at the University of Texas, and he just had it done within a day. Most people will can tell you in great detail the entire 
family tree of the cast from Game of Thrones. They can tell you in great detail about their football team. They can talk about every politician the Democratic Party, the Republican Party has had for the last 20 years. We have a great deal of knowledge about a lot of things. So why do we have to dumb it down when it comes to the story of God and Jesus, right? Yeah, right. I, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree. I think that what's missing is the connecting points between people's lives because the culture of the denial of death. Here's the thing. I, I just watched Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them with my kids, Eden and Samuel. And At least it, it wasn't was another over, R-rated movie. Them, That's good. Well done, man. It was PG-13. It was, once again, a movie that probably was above what they should have seen. But after I told them, in all sincerity, I believe there is magic in the world. There's good magic and bad magic. And I believe the strongest magic right now is that most of the world is under the spell that makes them think there is no magic. Does that make sense? No, I don't... This... this the spell of what I, secularity oh, yeah, okay, or yeah, whatever, yeah. that disenchanted world and that this really is all there is. And so, you know, trying to break through that prism, that, that enchantment, um, is, is really hard. And making connection points with people's lives, um, I yeah, think is... That's a tough one. And so, same thing, Danielle Schroer in her book um, was talking about original blessing, obviously a, a pun off original sin, the idea that the human condition didn't start with us being disconnected from God. In a lot of ways, those two books go hand in hand. Uh, obviously, they, both of those authors disagree with each other on some issues, which uh, Schroer talked about in, uh, in that podcast. But if, if that's not the, the issue, like you're separated by sin from God, like that's not the entirety of the story. I do think like your stuff about like enchantment, I think that's a really compelling thing because I think people still have to deal with shame. People still have to deal with guilt. But also if you say, God is here with you in this. I feel like that's the gospel that I have been most uh, converted by recently. Like uh, Barbara Brown Taylor has a thing right now about what's saving you, right? You remember that question? Like what's saving you right now? What's saving you today? Have you heard? Uh-uh. What, what is know. that? Where is that at? Um, I don't know where I've... Said a private text message. Yeah, that me, you and, have me with and Barb BBT. were just talking about that. Um, she's she's written about that. I can. No, oh, hold on. Which means that she's texting you. What's saving she, you? So it's Tom and Barbara Brown Taylor <laughs> are concerned for your salvation. I think that's the whole podcast. Is people like who have pity for my soul, and so they're trying to reach out to me. Um, maybe that's it. I, I'm so glad that you're becoming so self aware. Thank you, thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, me on this podcast. Um, but there ha- her thing is, what's saving you today? Not like in the eschatological sense, but like what is bringing you redemption right here in this moment? Yeah. And for you, it's the enchantment, I would assume. And for me, it's like, I, I think Roar's language on that, which is very similar to the same idea, but that, that God is with you in all this. Like it, it would be easy to revert to that man just lives by bread alone and it's just a material world, but that God has infused God's self in this very human situation that you're in and you're not alone in it. So that's what's saving me. And both, both of those things are, are tied together. I mean, enchanted God's presence and divine blessing. Like what I'm, when I mean, when I say uh, break the spell of enchantment is um, there is great joy on the other side. Like the presence of God and, and realizing he, 
in Him we move and live and have our being is a life of great joy. And I think, I think that's, uh, so if I was to summarize, and I haven't read, uh, the original blessing book that Daniel did, but if I was to summarize what I think it is, it's kind of like the, the serpent's first lie is that God is against you. Hmm, you know yeah, what I mean? That's interesting. That, that. Yeah. And that he's not. Hmm. I like it. That's good. No, God's against you. Okay, we've got to wrap this up. You've got to get out in a couple minutes. Um, okay, two things. Uh, sponsors for, the, for uh, the Deb Club. Have you checked out that book yet? Have you got a copy of it? I have downloaded it and I've read the first chapter. And Church Politics, I decided to go with something like John Grisham for a while because Church Politics are something was, I Was it too, like it seemed too realistic? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's very much like a um day day to day yeah, ministry. I had a, stuff. an old buddy who's a lawyer and years ago I was in like a John Grisham bender and I said, "Hey, hey, have you uh, have you read this uh, John Grisham book?" And he goes, "Luke, do you ever read a book called The Church House?" No. And that's why I don't read John Grisham books cuz I don't want to read about my day-to-day life. And I was like, "Okay, I I I get that." So, yeah, so it's it's like that. And what kind of law law practice does this guy have? Is he working with like I, I tell you, but he, ca- cancer patients who were screwed over by insurance mm-hmm. in Memphis, and then he's going to get the uh, I don't know. It's been a while. I can't go with that. Sorry, I was trying to <laughs> trying to think of it, but I don't have anything to go with. Yeah, his his locker is just like John Grisham. But uh, yeah, this the the book uh, the Deborah Club is. Uh, yeah, I know there's been a handful. Uh, uh, people from the podcast who've who've gotten a copy of it, and um, yeah, it's re- real fascinating, very interesting. The whole idea of doing church politics as a story, I think it's a very interesting take for people who really aren't insiders into kind of the insider world of church politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our um, what I read good. was good. You're good. Um, are you a little jealous because I'm doing that thing with Trip in January? Do you feel a little? Uh, I am. That sounds good. What is it exactly? <laughs> no, I mean it's what theology is it root beer camp. Okay, I I I think everybody who goes to your church should Google yeah. theology root beer camp with Trip Fuller, and I yeah, want to make sure you the root still beer are camp. Yeah. yeah, I think afterwards. that's what it's called. I don't really know. I'm there to I'm there to try to convert <laughs> him. And so I'll get my NT right, elevator pitch uh, tightened up, and then hopefully I can baptize him and some of his. Um, heretical friends in the ocean. He he plans some cool stuff, man. And and what I what I like about it is, I think church in the next generations is going to take a lot of different mm-hmm. forms. And I I don't think that they've arrived there yet. You know the wild goose, um, but they're trying to. They're trying to, you know, different expressions band yeah. together a group of yeah. But I, my one concern is that it would be people who all think and look the That's same. That's fair. I, I think part of what he's doing is creating a community for people who feel like they're isolated and don't have people they can talk to, and they feel like there's no one yeah. else who can relate to that. And that's what you see with like the liturgists, with their gatherings. It's a lot of people who feel like, hey, I, we just want to connect with other people. That's why people go to um, rob stuff. And I, I even, I've heard Pete Rollins say the same thing. Like, you can... You can listen to my content on YouTube and get all the content about what I'm going to say online, but you don't get the connection. And so I think the reason that they are so 
homogenous is that there is a specific felt need of people like this who don't feel like they can connect to the church. And I think it's great that their community's popping up. Yep. As long as they move, like, I, 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 yes. Right. Okay. I, but, I mean, I just think, like, it's a specific set of questions that's all coming from the same white European descent, highly educated, um, and and yeah. very privileged. And, like, there's something about, like, what Richard did with going to the mm-hmm. jails, going working at Freedom, um, that changes the, the questions and gives you um, yeah. better answers. But, yeah. But I'm all for what they're doing. I just, I hope it moves that direction. Well, you should come and you could be the uh, one uneducated hillbilly there. That'd be great. <laughs> I'll be the prophet standing outside with a Turner bird. Yeah, you could. You should do that. Yes, I'll be real yeah. popular. You're popular with that already, crowd. Jonathan. Well, well, hey. Oh yeah. So I'm gonna next? do some different things. I'm gonna do a couple podcasts that are just um, topically driven. So I want to talk about um, the idea of reconstruction. So we talked a lot about construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, and so I want to do a, a topic centric set a podcast. And so that'll be the first one. I've got uh, Brian's done. I'm actually talking with him uh, in a couple hours. And then my buddy, Paul Nevison. And so we're going to talk about that one first. I've got one um, talking about refugees, their experience. Go ahead. You're going to interrupt me right there. I was going to ask, I, I would love to hear what Brian Zahn has to say about the Trump election living in Missouri. And, and I know he and I think a lot about um, the same about politics, but I would like to know, like uh, the what the liberal progressives and um, people, sophisticated elites, what we need to learn about this vote from hmm. that demographic. You know what I mean? Like, not that, not that what doomsday scenarios mm-hmm. Trump's going to do, or that it, religious right, all that. I get that, and and I also am with him on that. It's just I would like to know what his take is on. Well, you should contact him because we're talking about reconstruction, not about politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm giving you witty banter. I'm giving but, you witty banter. But this is a topic driven, not a, a banter driven. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm interested about this uh, this concept of doing different format on the podcast for uh, for a couple in December. So we'll see how they go. But um, should be good. Jonathan, as always, it's a pleasure. Let's do this again this afternoon. We'll get it a third run. You- we really did go oh, a lot of different directions than what we did yesterday. I know. It's been a very different yeah. kind of wrap-up. Because I get kind of bored doing the same thing. Like, after the the third time with the sermon, like, I'm just like, I don't want to do this. I don't know why you want to. I'm I'm sick of it. Don't mm-hmm. say anything. Don't. I think don't. people even the... <laughs> <I said it. laughs> okay. Thanks okay. for checking out Newsworthy. <laughs> Newsworthy. Right. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.